Jesus. And turn, please, to the beginning. The book of Genesis. And you may be thinking, well, wait a minute. Now, last week you said we were going to start Advent today. Don't you mean Matthew 1 or Luke or John even? Why would you go clear back to Genesis and talk about Advent? That's not very Christmassy, is it? And I think that's a great question. If I were visiting here, I would have that question and wonder, well, maybe this is one of those churches that, uh, you know, they just don't acknowledge uh, up until Christmas and, and they just kind of move right through it. Um, but the whole rest of our service says that's not the case. Last Sunday night when we had our hanging of the green, uh, you heard a portion of a quote it was from J. Sidlow Baxter from his uh, book, Awake My Heart. He wrote this, separate Christmas Day from Good Friday and Christmas is doomed. Doomed to decay into a merely sentimental or superstitious or sensuous eat, drink, and be merry festivity of December. Bethlehem and Golgotha the manger and the cross, the birth and the death must always be seen together if the real Christmas is to survive with all its profound inspirations. And so that's why today we begin our Advent series by talking about the fall. And I mean the great fall, not the season of the year. For us to really understand, for us to, to really grasp Christmas, I am convinced that we've got, to, we've got to go all the way back and we've got to work our way up to the reason, and I think this addresses the question, why was Christmas even necessary? And by Christmas, I mean the incarnation. I mean uh, the coming uh, of uh, Jesus as a baby for salvation. What made that necessary? Now, I know when I say, well, why is Christmas necessary? Some of you are saying, well, you know, when else are we going to cut down a tree from outside and bring it in? When are we going to get our gifts? That's why it's necessary. We're talking theologically here. What in the world throughout the Scripture tells us that Christmas is absolutely necessary? I would submit to you that understanding the fall is going to enhance not only your understanding of Christmas, but appreciation for the great doctrines that surround it. So let's jump in. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to read a lot of Scripture to you today, but I'm going to do it interspersed. 
So that's why I encouraged you to uh, uh, turn to Genesis 1. We begin with uh, what I've called the, the fellowship. And basically, they had it all. They, Adam and Eve, had it all. What do we see in the Scripture concerning that? Uh, Verse 29 of Genesis 1 says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And God saw, this is verse 31, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. God had spent six days creating. And after each day, he pronounced a benediction. Now, we end our service with what we call a benediction. Uh, good, good and diction word. So, a good word. So, at the end of uh, each aspect of his creation, God said, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. And then... He came to the sixth day, and he says this. He looks at everything so far and says, it's very good. You know what he was saying? He looked at everything, and he said, yes! (laughs) I don't know that he raised his hands. But that was his emotion. Look at this. It's very good. Picture the most beautiful place you've ever been. The most productive soil. Picture the most beautiful animals. A zoo without cages or fences. Because they're not going to hurt each other and they're not going to hurt you. Milling around, enjoying one another. Well, it was better than that place you've just pictured. That's what was all good. Well, not all good. He pronounced all these benedictions and then... At one point, he pronounced a malediction, a bad word. He said, it's not good when he looked at something. And that's what we see in chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now look at the solution. This this companion in uh, Genesis 2, I just read 18, keep reading. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man uh, to see what he would call them, whatever the man called every living creature. That was its name. 
The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. This is every boy's dream. The animals are being brought to him. He's seeing them. He gets to name them whatever he wants to name them. That's a pig. Hippopotamus. You know, where did these, where, the, the names, amazing. And he named them and they came. And he was fine with it. He was good with it. We have to assume he even had man's best friend there. And he was enjoying all of the animals as if they were all man's best friend. And he was okay with that, it seems. But it says this, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, I've got to assume here that that's God's perspective. Because basically, how would he know? <laughs> how would he know that these animals, as wonderful as they were, could not commune with him in a way that God had planned. And so, we see God doing a cosmic surgery. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place and, and fle with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said... Now remember, all the animals had been brought to him. He gave them names and so on. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Now that doesn't do it justice. In the original language, there's a big emphasis here with the the at last. Here's, here's what it is. All these animals are, are coming to him. And then he's presented with a woman and it's like, whoa! Do you see that? Now the animals could care less, I think, at this point. Look at her! That was his reaction. Now that, she, that's something special. And so she's given to him. And then we see in verse 24, and, and this, by the way, is the institution of marriage. Right there, before the fall, uh, before there was sin, Marriage is instituted, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the way it's supposed to be. One man, one woman for life. 
right here at the beginning. That was before the fall. Those things began to change later, as we'll see. But it was the, the perfect relationship, and then the third thing they had was communion with the Creator. If you look through these several chapters, you will see that there was interaction with God. It was direct interaction. It was good interaction. It was right. It was close. It was direct and immediate. It was the normal way of communing with one another, with God, before the great fall. Now, there's one more thing about these when I say they had it all. The place, the companion, and the communion. It was all by grace. Don't ever think that God owed Adam any of that or that he owed Eve any of that. He's the creator. They were the creatures. This wonderful place that they were in, this wonderful companionship that they had with one another and with God was all by grace. Grace is that which you, you don't deserve and you can't earn it. And that's what this was. They had it all by grace. That's important to understand because of what happened next. If you look in Genesis 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than all, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, now, here, here's the, the question. There's nuance here. He says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Satan begins by implanting a seed of doubt. We will see here that she understood what God had said. Satan knew what God had said. By the way, he tried the same thing later with Jesus in his temptation. If you are the Son of God, he said to him. So that's often where he starts, by just implanting, just twisting things a little bit. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Eve understood the conditions. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. So now Satan ratchets up from just twisting the truth, telling a half-truth, to telling an out-and-out lie to contradicting God and the truth. Verse 5, For the Lord knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you may wonder about that. What's, you know, what, what's wrong with that? You mean they didn't know the, the difference between good and evil? This is talking about that lust for the experience of it. 
the experiential part. They had known good. They wanted to experience the other side of it. Look at what temptation was here. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, remember these three things, it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some uh, to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, here is what an illustration of the attractiveness of sin here. You've got, uh, it was good for food, the lust of the flesh. Oh, that looks good. A delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. And she believed Satan's lie. And the man went along and they ate. By the way, it, there wasn't anything magical about that fruit or that tree. God could have said, you know, look, here's a river. Don't cross over that river. They could have said, don't climb that tree. The sin had already taken place when they ate because they believed Satan rather than God. That's when the sin took place. So the man's there. He goes along with it which, by the way, he was not fulfilling his role. Rather than protecting the woman, he follows her right into sin. He didn't, he didn't engage in uh, the argument. Uh, he didn't say, no, no, you know, remember what, what God said to us? God who gave us one another by grace, who gave us this beautiful place, why would we? He didn't do any of that. He followed along and was not fulfilling his role. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The first result is shame, shame for that which had been good. You see, up to that point, that, that was good. They weren't ashamed. And so they tried to cover themselves. Notice I said they tried to cover themselves. Not a very good attempt, if you ask me. Verse 8 then. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now God already knew. <laughs> it's not like you know, some have kind of touted this as a little hide-and-seek game, you know, and they were hiding and God couldn't. No, that's not it. Where are you? What's going on? Verse 10, and, I, and he, meaning Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, 
the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. We're all related to him, guys. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. You know, it's not my fault is not new. That's, that's kind of the default button there. That's where we go. God, the woman, wait a minute, I can make it even more. The woman you gave me, it's both of your fault. Now remember, he didn't say, the woman you gave me to love and to have enjoyment with that you gave me by grace. No, there's blame here. And the woman blames the serpent. Now let's look at the fix. We see the curse in Genesis 3, verse 14 through 19. We'll go quickly through this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. By the way, the, the curse here, we, we could spend a whole sermon series on this alone. We're, we're touching on it to get to what the fix really is. God begins with the tool of Satan. Even though the tool was passive, and that's the serpent, and so here's what you need to do. When you see a snake slithering around on its belly, be reminded of Satan's eventual defeat. He's going to lose. And even though that may cause you some fear, if you're anything like me, I, you know, it, it doesn't matter to me whether the snake's poisonous or not. You can tell me about slanted eyes. As far as I'm concerned, they can all kill you. <laughs> but when you see that snake, be reminded. You know what? It's slithering around because of the fall and the curse. And the curse reminds us that there is a judgment. And that judgment is upon Satan, not just this poor little reptile that he happened to use. And then verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're going to return to that. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Here we see God's blessing and judgment put in here. Any woman who has had a baby says, I get it. I understand this. Understand this. What happens is that which was natural now becomes painful because sin is in the world. That's what we see with this. But the gracious part of this is 
that though there is pain, it is through this process that I will give the world my Savior. And that's what we will see. He chose a baby to come into the world, reversing the curse. And then the last part, uh, that last part of that is generally considered to be over-dependence on the husband. Verse 17 then, And Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, uh, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You'll eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now, again, remember that they were given the garden. They were told to take care of the garden. Uh, that was a good thing. It was not a toilsome thing. Uh, work was not a part of the curse. But what happens is when sin comes into the world, then work, which was always there, becomes hard. It's hard for you all week long to work and to put food on the table. You're going to do it by the sweat of your brow and it's going to be harder than it was before. And then, you know, it's basically because the earth's not going to cooperate with you anymore. It's been cursed. And then we see this phrase, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And there we see the curse of death. And those of you that have loved people you lost, uh, uh, lost people you love, you know how hard that is. And, and you know that there's something inside of you that says, this is not a good process. It wasn't there before sin came into the world. You can look around. You can look on death. You can look on generally suffering that may come around death. You can see evil in this world. You can see our bodies winding down. You know what? Yesterday I was at Gold's Gym. I try to go there four or five times a week. And I was there yesterday and I had just preached through this sermon. And a lot of times I'll put on, on Saturdays, put my message up as I'm memorizing it and so on. And, and you know, while I'm on the cardio and I started, I was looking around, and everywhere I looked, I saw evidence of the curse. <laughs> now, I suspect I was the only one in Gold's Gym thinking about the fall that day. But as I looked around, I, you know, I started thinking about the curse, and I, I thought, you know what, that's why we have gyms, because our bodies start winding down, and we need this, and you know, I'm, I'm seeing, uh, you know, you've, you've, got, you've got everything from, you know, the, uh, the, our, seeing our bodies wind down to the pride of life. You know, down on the main floor of Gold's Gym, they've, they've got the weights, and that's where the muscle men are down there. And they've got mirrors along the whole wall, both walls. And the guys are walking, looking. It's, those are the mirrors I don't look at, you know. <laughs> 
I bypass them, go up the steps. And they're looking and admiring. And it is, it's the pride of life. It's saying, oh, I'm getting there. Or that's good. Or saying, it's not what it ought to be. You know what? When you understand this, pretty soon you see the fall everywhere, everywhere we go. And uh, here's what you need to do when you see evil in this world. When you see things that aren't fair, when you see sickness and suffering and you see death, that's when you, that's when you need to say, you know what? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. But here's the good news. It's not the way it will be. See, that, that's where the gospel comes in. What will change it? Back to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. The woman was first seduced. Man in his pride blamed the woman, but the woman shall provide the one who will bring salvation. And between your offspring and her offspring, enmity between Satan and Christ. And then here's here's the fix. He, Christ, shall bruise your head, speaking to Satan. And you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. You get the difference? A bruised head, a bruised heel. A bruised heel hurts. A bruised head can kill you. And that's the cross. That's a picture of the cross right there. Satan sees Jesus going to the cross and he thinks he's bruised his head because he dies and he's put in a tomb. And then he walks out of the tomb and he realizes, I've only bruised his heel. He's walking. He's going to win. It's my head that will be crushed. And that's the cross. In the fall of 2010, there were billions of people around the world that were watching a drama unfold down in Chile. There was a mine that caved in. Now, because I've in a previous church, worked with miners. I was watching it closely because I know that miners, somewhere in the back of their mind, they always know that's a possibility. And many of them know of people or had relatives that have died that way. What a horrible thing to have it cave in. And they knew they were still alive down there. There were a number of them, 33 men, 2,000 feet of rock over them. People from all over the world, including NASA, were trying to figure out a way to get them out before they died. Those men, uh, every other day, would eat a spoonful of tuna that they had down there for some reason, 
a little piece of a peach, and just a little uh, bit of milk every other day. And they looked at the, the cave-in and they realized that it was hopeless from their end. And they continued there for two months. No one had ever been trapped underground for that long and lived to tell about it. Now, there have been those who have lived to tell about it. Because on October 13th of that year, they broke through. And on that day, out of that what would have been their tomb came a great-grandfather, a 44-year-old, a 19-year-old, and all kinds of others who had been working down there. And they all had different stories, but they had all made the same decision. And the decision was this. They had trusted someone else to save them. They looked at their world, and they reached the unanimous opinion, we need help. We need someone to penetrate our world and take us out. Otherwise, it's hopeless. And when the help came, they accepted it. And they rejoiced on that day. The great fall shows us that we are helpless unless someone comes to help. Unless someone penetrates our world to give us salvation. Adam and Eve couldn't even cover their own shame. Do you know what happened? I said they tried to cover themselves with the leaves. You look in chapter 3, verse 21, and it said God basically took those away and replaced them. And he covered them with skins, animal skins. You know what that means? To cover their shame. They couldn't even cover themselves. To cover their shame took the first sacrifice and the first shedding of blood that would point to the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate shedding of blood. So Adam and Eve now stood outside of their glorious paradise they had experienced and began to experience a fallen world. And their hope, their only hope, was for the coming of the Messiah. And that's why Christmas is necessary. And that's our hope as well. Let's bow together. Lord, we, we pray that you will show us our great need, that it is hopeless and helpless unless you indeed have penetrated this world with salvation. Lord, give us an anticipation as this story unfolds before us 
Give us faith to believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.